You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, we are grateful for you being here today, whether you're worshiping with us online. As mentioned a moment ago, you're the Jetsons or you're more like the Bunkers. Is that what that might be for those of us who are here together? I don't know which of those two. Maybe the Jeffersons. I, I don't know. The other Jeffersons, not the Je- Jeff Jeffersons, but the Jeffersons on the Bunkers. Anyway, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to worship with us. If this is your first time with us, we hope that you find a home after the service. I would love to meet with you personally. Uh, please come find me. I'll be out in the hallway. Hey, I hope you'll join with me this upcoming Wednesday night. I'll be interviewing David Dockery on how to get more out of your Bible. David is the provost over at Southwestern Seminary. He's formerly been the Union University president as well as Trinity up in uh, Deerfield, Illinois, president, a seminary up there. You'll really profit from this interview. All this month, instead of bringing you to the church, we're bringing the church to you on Wednesday nights. In doing so, we're highlighting authors. A week ago, we highlighted this past Wednesday, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Fantastic book, something I read as a young man. And so I invite you, go by the library if you want a copy of one of these. They're for sale there, and we would love for you to do that. And again, join me this upcoming Wednesday. This morning, I want to speak to you on this topic, God's plan and me. Get a little nervous when you hand the remote to your wife. Amen? 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 So it was one night. Uh, it was her time to choose the movie. And you get a little nervous there because you don't know what the next hour or two is going to bring. But, I mean, she chose me, so <laughs> got to trust her at some level, right? So she chooses this movie called Serendipity, a 2001 John Cusack. Now, I, I, most everything John Cusack's in, I tend to like. And have you seen this movie? Sort of romantic comedy type thing. Cusack meets Sarah. They meet at Bloomingdale's, and they both reach for a black glove, and they just really hit it off. In fact, they go get a cup of coffee over at a restaurant after that. But Sarah's a little hesitant. Rather than just exchanging phone numbers and that kind of thing, she wonders, is this my soulmate? So again, it's a, it's a chick flick, so it's got to have a soulmate, right? And so rather than just exchanging names and phone numbers, Sarah and the character of Cusack, what they do is this. He writes his number down and his name and his number in a cover of a book, just inside the cover, writes it down there, puts it back. The next day that book is sold. She won't see it for a long time. She puts her name and number on a $5 bill, gets rid of it. So the, the idea is if they're supposed to be together, then the $5 bill will come back in her possession and the book, you get it, right? So time goes along and they've forgotten about one another in one sense, another sense they haven't. So they're both engaged. One lives in New York, and one lives in the West Coast. But as they're engaged now, they begin to get cold feet. And they're thinking about that that time when they exchanged the $5 bill in the book. So she travels back to New York from San Francisco, and she goes back to the very restaurant where she finds that $5 bill again after all these years. There's his name and his number. And he, about the same time, his fiancée gives him the very book If you've not seen the movie, I've just ruined it for you. (laughs) The very book where the name and number's in there. And, of course, they meet at Central Park and live happily ever after, and the whole thing's that. Is that the way God works? Is our lives planned out? Do we have this thing where just sort of 
randomly, we think randomly, just kind of comes together. Now, I don't know what your experience with Christianity is in churches like ours. You may be going through a really hard week, a really hard time, and some cheery, well-meaning Christian says, well, God has a plan. And I get it, and I'm about to tell you that God has a plan, but I'm not going to be that cheery, uh, maybe in that piece. But I'm here today to tell you that everything has been planned out. I want to convince you of that. In fact, you can count the movie references in this sermon. You might just, uh, a week ago, wasn't it? I had a bunch of airline stuff. This week's movies, count the movie references. Signs with Mel Gibson, the central character. Gibson says, essentially, there are two types of people in this life. There are those who see everything happens by chance, and the other type of people see things as a coincidence. One type of person sees everything by chance, and the other type of person sees things by coincidence. Which are you? Do you see that things are just random and chaos? Or do you see that things are planned? Essentially, you're going to have to have faith to see that things are planned. I'm going to give you some reasons for the head, but you're going to have to come down to this decision by faith. And faith is like an on and off switch. Either it's on or it's off. Either you have faith or you don't. Now, for some of you in the room that you do have faith, faith also acts like a dimmer switch. Not just an on and off switch, but a dimmer switch. And that you can increase the light in a room or you can increase your faith in Christ. You can increase, what's the synonym? Your confidence in Christ. Faith and confidence are synonyms. Your confidence in Christ. So which are you? Are you on the off switch or are you the on switch? Do you have faith? Do you see life by chance or do you see it by coincidence? And if you see it by coincidence or what I'd say by the plan of God, could maybe the next few minutes be just sort of a renewal, a, a reminder of the hope that there is a plan? Because we need some hope, right? Yeah. It's a good place to say amen. We're going to get to hope in just a minute. Here's the four questions I want to look at with you. Beginning first, how can I be sure that God really has a plan? Or the first question is, how can, I be, how can I be sure? Notice in verse 10 of Ephesians 1, the Bible begins as a plan. A little word, plan. It is the word from which we get our word economy. It literally means house management. The word there means house man, manager of a house. Again, we get our word economy for it. Think of it as an administration. In fact, we have a new president, and his administration is rolling out new pieces, executive orders, that kind of thing. And the Bible's telling us that there is an administrator over the universe, over our lives. Again, this is God's plan in me. And so the Bible here tells us that God has this plan, and it may surprise you to know that God has a plan. In fact, you may have come in here convinced that there is no plan. You may be one who used to think there was a plan and then 2020 happened and you're just absolutely convinced there can be no plan after the events of the last 12 months. Well, much of what you think about a plan has to do with how you think, how you believe things got together. In other words, the origin of the universe and the plan are connected. They're connected. I don't know much about cars. I know enough at almost 50 years of age to know when the, when the guy's lying to me, but I don't know much about cars. I do know this. Many places in that engine, if you start messing with it, it's going to impact another place. And I'm telling you this, that if you mess with the engine of how you believe things came together, the origins, 
you're going to also have a connection to this idea of a plan. In fact, in many biology classrooms around America today, we're told that mindless evolutionary change move things. The things are moved. They're not moved upon with a designer. Things are happening. It's mindless evolutionary change. One textbook says it this way. This, it's, really, it's really philosophy, not science. It says, and I quote, a crossing universe encompassing billions of light years through scales of magnitude extending from subnuclear particles to immense galaxies clashing together like symbols. There's no hint of plan or purpose. Here, everything is random. Everything's by chance. There's no $5 bill that comes back to me. There's no book that comes back with her name or his name. So you got this thing, how do I decide how I see the universe? Is there this plan? Well, I found it kind of comical. I came across this, uh, this math equation this past week. Look at this thing. Does this bring back warm memories or what? Huh? There's about three people in the room solving this thing right now. They're going to come find me after the conclusion and tell me I didn't carry the one or something. Let's have a little fun with math. This, what you're seeing is Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem. It originates in the 18th century from a Presbyterian pastor. He comes up with this. And it's consequential to this day. This theorem is in the Google robotic cars navigating North California making their way. They can just drive themselves, right? This is used in cancer research. For those of us who are a little uh, back in the day, DOS before everything else came, if-then statements or in math, if-then, A, B, all that kind of thing. So this thing really uh, is consequential. It's taking on more and more popularity among various fields in science. Dr. Stephen Unwin took this theory and he published a book where by that theory, he will tell you that he's 67% sure there's a God who exists. Isn't that interesting? See, you were looking in the Bible when you really should have been looking in science and algebra. That's what you should have been doing all along. Well, you may be here today saying, you know, Pastor, the one thing I learned in calculus, the one thing I learned in differential equations was that I'm not good at any of that stuff. Is there another route to go (laughs) other than math? I remember my dad, who was an engineer at Penn State, he said, differential equations kick my, I'll let you fill in the the blank there, what he said next. So how do I know if I'm not a mathematician? Well, look back at verse 9. Verse 9 of of chapter 1 of Ephesians 1, look what it says. Making known to the mystery, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. So how do I choose? How do I know if there's a God and there's a plan? Well, the Bible says if you ask the God, if you ask the God of the Bible, how do I know there's a plan? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the broadcasting. It is the signal that there is a plan. I know God because of Jesus Christ. This word mystery in verse 9, you want to circle that word. It's going to come up frequently in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I can hear, for those of you who've got any age on you, Dr. Criswell him pronouncing the Greek word musterion, if you've heard him over at First Dallas. The word mystery here has little to do with a detective story. It has little to do with Scooby-Doo in the mystery van. Anybody watching Scooby-Doo these days? It's got nothing to do with those things. Instead, the word mystery in your New Testament is a secret that God has kept hidden 
for ages, but is now made known. It's a secret that God has hidden for ages, but that God's made known. Look over at verse 9 of chapter 3, where you'll see these words. Ephesians 3, verse 9. Just flip over a page, and you'll see this. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things. So frequently, your New Testament speaks about a mystery. And the mystery essentially is, it was a mystery. God's plan was a mystery all through Abraham and David, all the way up to Bethlehem. And that's where he began to broadcast his purpose. The purpose, look at the back end of verse 9 now. He set forth in Christ. How do we know the purpose of God? It's that. He set it forth in Jesus Christ. You know, um, I found something out this week that some people, to get through the stress of the past year, have done something called manifesting, manifestation. And according to Oprah Winfrey's magazine, which you can track a little bit more about that if you want, it's you picture something. I picture the job I want. I picture the healthy relationship, the great marriage, my soulmate, all these things. I picture it, and then eventually, when I pinpoint all my hopes, my dreams, my goals, I then need to ask the universe for what I want. In fact, let me give it to you as a quote. This is from uh, one of Oprah's. Oprah didn't write it, but it's in her magazine. Quote, write down what you want in the following order. Three times in the morning, six times in the afternoon, nine times at night for 33 or 45 days. But it can also be as simple as writing a letter to the universe, manifesting. Now, that type of thing that's particularly current today went by a different name a generation ago. The, the, for people who have a little uh, rotary phones, which were mentioned earlier, and landlines, that's called Norman Vincent Peale. Or in the West Coast, that's Robert Schuller. Or right here in Texas, it's America's favorite pastor, Joel Osteen. When I grow up, I want to have his hair as beautiful as Joel, right? The Bible doesn't say you manifest. The Bible says here's how you know God's plan for the universe and for you. You look at Jesus Christ. You don't write a letter to the universe. Look at this. Watch carefully. You look at Jesus, you study him, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And some of you have grown up in the faith. You're like I was. I grew up in the faith. And I heard all this stuff. And I knew what to do in church. But when God spoke to me in a dorm room, University of Kentucky, I did something. My faith was my own at one level, but I turned up, I turned up the dimmer switch. My faith became more on. I got into this. I figured... If I'm going to stand up in front of people for a living, for, genera for, for generations, for decades, I better know what I'm doing. And so there's got to come a point. Some of you, you've grown up with this, but you, you've, tuned, you've tuned out the teacher or the pastor. It's white noise. Look at Jesus. Study him. His life, his death, his resurrection, especially his resurrection. Look at that piece. If you want to done it, look at that. Is he really in the grave? Are we talking about just fables and myth? Are we talking about a dead man rising? Because I think you might agree with me, if dead man rise in any religion, he's got a starting, you know, he, he's cheated in the race, so to speak. Everybody else is lined up, all the other religions. But if a dead man is risen, I want to put my money on that horse right there. So how do I know if God has a plan? You can manifest, you can go by chance. I'm looking at Jesus, according to Ephesians 1. Here's a second, what is God's plan? What is God's plan? Ephesians gives us three features to the plan of God. I want to show you all of them. Beginning there in verse 10, 
The Bible says the first thing we know about the plan is as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, see that word? Unite all things in him. If the plan of God is architecture, center, central to the architecture is Jesus Christ. He is central to the architecture of the plan of God. The Bible says right here that to unite all things is in Jesus. That word unite is the word summary. It's described elsewhere over in Romans that every command of God, all the other commands, there's more than five to 600 commands in the Old Testament. The Bible says they can be summed up in the second commandment. And that's that word, unite. Everything can be summed up. It is united in Jesus Christ. So let me tell you some good news. Jesus is at the center of the plan, both for the universe and for your plan. He is here to heal all the disintegration and the decay of your life. He's here to heal your brokenness. He's, healed, he's here to heal the disharmony of all things, the things that feel like it's in chaos. That word unite, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but you want to pay attention to that word right there in verse 10, to unite. And the Bible tells us more than just Jesus is the center of the will. It gets into some details. Did you know that the cross, the cross is at the center of God's plan? If you were to walk into heaven right now and say, hey, God, what's your plan B? Everyone would stand around looking at you and say, plan B. There's no plan Bs here. You may be on plan, you know, like M or plan Z, Z in your life. God doesn't have a plan B. The cross is at the center of God's plan. Over in Acts chapter 4, man named Peter, this is shortly after the resurrection, Peter says this, for truly in this city, the city of Jerusalem, so he's speaking to the very people who cried perhaps for the crucifixion of Jesus, for truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Then he mentions two people, Herod and Pontius Pilate. Look at those last words. Your plan had predetermined to take place. Your Bible says God's plans are so intricate He's so forward-looking that he sees even Herod and Pilate. Who are those two guys? These are two Roman politicians. One would act like a governor of the area. The other would work like a king that sort of had overlapping. And both of them had an opportunity to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. But look at Acts 4. Acts 4 says God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit had even these two's actions in the plan. You know, I stopped to think about that. It kind of gives me goosebumps. This is better than Dwight Eisenhower in D-Day. This is incredible. He sees ahead and plans this thing. Staggering. Gives me goosebumps. Let me give you one more feature of the plan. The Bible says not only is Jesus central to the plan, not only is the cross in his plan, but the Bible says that one day there's coming that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the Bible's telling us that some of us will bend the knee willingly and others will do so not willingly. Do you remember your rebellious phase with your parents? You remember that? Maybe you're still in that phase with your parents, right? Now, anybody had the privilege of parenting, fathering a teenage girl? It's a beautiful thing. If eye roll could be made into money, I'd have it made, right? That rebellious phase. 
Whether you wanted to or not, at certain times you obeyed them. That's exactly what it's going to be at the end of time. My, my purpose right here today is to get you to do so willingly, to do so willingly that you would bend the knee and bow the head of Jesus. Jesus at the center of the plan of God. Here's the second thing Ephesians tells us is in the plan. Racial reconciliation. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Turn over a page, if you will. You read verse 9 a moment ago. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus of the gospel. Your Bible is telling you long before political correctness, long before diversity training at your HR, that he's going to bring together the races. Now, we see races as black and white, but a bigger divide, a lot bigger divide, is Jews and Gentiles. Even today when you visit Israel, there's still a huge divide among one group, the ultra-Orthodox, the Jews and everybody else. The Bible tells us, I don't have a lot of time, we'll get on this later this year, that he's going to bring the races together under the banner of Jesus Christ. One more, talking about what is the plan. I love this. Chapter 2, verse 10. Just sticking with Ephesians. That's our book. What's the plan of God? Ephesians says, God's plan is that you are his workmanship. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That is incredible. He looks down in the annals of time, and he sees your life, and he says, I've got good works planned for Margaret. I've got good works planned out. You know, that's so un-American. Here's another movie reference. Back to the Future. Now, you're getting to the top of the movies, the very top of the movies when you get to Back to the Future, the trilogy. You remember what Professor Brown says to Marty? Do you remember this piece? He says, your future is whatever you make it. So make it a... What's wrong with you people? Do you not know your movies? You don't know your Bible? You don't know your movies? Make it a good one. That's the American way. Make it a good one. The Bible says God has planned out. He's not leaving this thing to chance. In fact, King David would write these words, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So when as yet there was none of them. So God has these good works planned for you. And that should encourage you. You shouldn't just say, ah, oh, guess he's going to do it. No, he's going to overcome all your selfishness. All your laziness, all your Netflixing, your Huluing. He's going to get you off that couch. And in the name of Jesus, you're going to offer some cups of cold water. You're going to love some people. You're going to love some unlovable people. There's some teachers in the room. You're going to go back in there tomorrow and deal with that boy, that girl, one more day without strangling them. Why? Because God has prepared beforehand. He's given you the power. He's behind you. You're not living life into the wind you're living life with the wind behind you and he's put the spirit of god in you you can conquer your selfishness you can conquer your ego you can conquer your addiction if you're a believer in the lord jesus christ so there's power here so that's what the plan of god is the plan of god includes the cross of jesus the exaltation of jesus jesus is the center it brings all the races together and the good works he's planned so what is the plan? But can I really believe, here's the third question, can I really believe in God's plan despite this crazy world? Can I really believe, can I stand here before you and tell you that God has a plan even on the heels of 2020? You know, there are days that I, I wonder if God has a plan 
when I just look at my house. I don't have to go outside my house. I just look at the craziness in my living room and the, all that kind of stuff. Well, let me help you with this because the Bible's going to teach us that you and I have what I'm calling three false starts. We're a week away from the Super Bowl where, God willing, the Chiefs will put a dagger in the heart of Tom Brady and keep him away, right? <laughs> let me give you three false starts here. First, people think, well, God's just making up. He must just be making it up as he goes along. Look back at your Bible. Here, verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Again, this is one sentence. We're in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Look at verse 4 and 5. The Bible says here, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So when did he make the plan? He made the plan a long time ago, before you did anything, before Adam and Eve, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Now, if I tell you that I'm adopted, if I tell you that I'm adopted, something wrong has happened with my biological family, right? Something must have happened. God planned for your adoption before anything. He knows about the chaos. He's not making this up as he goes along. He's too good for that. He knows, as I've already told you, with Herod and Pilate, he foresaw everything being ruined everything messing up, the Murphy's Law, if you will. So the plan is in place long before anything else, and he sees the chaos of the world, and he's got this plan together. Let me show you the second false start. Not only some would say, well, he's making it up as he goes along. The second would be this, well, God's power must be limited. There's no way God has a plan and all this chaos happens. His power must be limited. Look back at verse 11, where the Bible says this, having been predestined for the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now look at the language there. It didn't say he worked in all things. It doesn't say he worked some things. Your Bible says he works all things. What does that feel like? There was a woman a generation or more ago named Corey Ten Boom. She was in Ravensbrook. She was in the concentration camp. And when asked what she was doing, what she thought there in the concentration camp that would eventually take the life of her sister, Corey Tim Boom said these words, not what, but who. Not what, but who. And then she said this, the devil is strong, but his power is limited. Jesus' power is unlimited. Corey Tim Boom came to believe that when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, that she took that by faith. She took that by faith. And it was Jesus Christ who sustained Corey in that concentration camp and got her on the other side. And let's be clear, even if you disagree with the Bible, no matter where you're coming from, the Bible is teaching there is one God. One God, not multiple gods, not God of the zip code. There's one God who's governing things. And he's not limited in knowledge. There's not plans, plural. There is plan, singular. He's yet to find plan B. He's yet to need plan B. Here's a third false start. Can I really believe in a plan with this crazy world? Well, some would say that his knowledge is limited. Others would say his power is limited. His power is limited. A man named Greg was asked by his father. Greg's, fa Greg's father asked Greg, he said, hey, how could God create Hitler knowing that Hitler would massacre all the Jewish people? and he massacred gypsies and others. Greg replied back. He said, God could not know with certainty what Hitler would do. 
Is that right? Let's look back at the text. Let's see if Greg is right in answering his father. Look at verse 11 again with me. In him we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Now, guys, it's hard for me to understand difficulties like Hitler. I'm not standing up here telling you I know it all, but I've got a Bible in front of me. And when it comes to the on-off switch of faith, mine's on. I'm trusting that there is a God in heaven whom everything came by his origin, and he's planning things. It's an incredibly sweeping statement in verse 11. All things are planned by him. In fact, you could put right alongside of it one of the favorite verses. But if you ask the people here today, what's your favorite verse? There'd be John 3:60. Here's another one, Romans 8, 28. We know that for, the Bible says, for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible teaches that God's knowledge is not limited. Over in 1 Samuel, King David asked God, he said, hey, how's this going to turn out? He's running from Saul. 1 Samuel 23, if you want to look it up later. He's, he's running from Saul, and he says, if I surrender to these men over here, I think Kali was there, something like that. He says, if I surrender to these guys right here, what will they do? Will they turn me in? Will they, will they turn their... God says they will certainly do that. They will certainly turn their back against you. God knows the future. Jesus stood in towns in northern Galilee. I've had the privilege of standing right there. And he tells them, he says, hey, you guys are so wicked. You're so wicked that if God had done the very same works in your city that he had done in Sodom and Gomorrah, remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? He wiped them off the face. He said they would have repented a long time ago. So God not only knows what you're going to do, he knows what you might do, what philosophers call middle knowledge. God's knowledge isn't limited. His power isn't limited. In fact, back in verse 10, look at this word, this word unite. I want to show you this. No translation does justice to this word. The word unite in the original Greek has a prefix in front of it. It should read reunite. Reunite. It's telling you that God made everything perfect, in perfect harmony. There's no chaos, there's no sin, there's no accusatory thing back and forth. Marriages were perfect. Everything was perfect. And then Adam and Eve come along, and they do their thing in Genesis chapter 3, and everything is in disharmony. But look what verse 10 again says. He will reunite. Jesus will bring the disharmony. He'll bring healing. He'll bring healing to your life. God is calling on you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your plan. That's something that you need to do. He can only reunite and will reunite everything in the universe. He'll reunite and heal you. Hey, look at me for just a moment. If we're a serious church, we need to remind one another of this. I've told you that my faith is on, but there are days that my faith is weak. There's Mondays and there's Tuesdays. And then report cards come out for kids, and bills come in as a dad, and you think, really, God? And we need to remind one another of this. This isn't just you stick it on the refrigerator once, forever. No. You remind one another. We encourage one another with these words. And listen carefully. Don't give in to cynicism. 
We live in this day when the politically we are not just a mess, we're a god-awful mess. And we've got this mess of a virus. Cynicism says, don't lift your hands, don't do anything good, don't have hope, don't be that way. Don't be that way. We're to have a song in our heart and a joy. Why? Because this is the fact in our head that God is in charge. He's got a plan. When I interviewed Josh McDowell earlier this week, Josh, how did you come to faith in Christ? Josh said he'd been abused in a terrible way as a child. And he said, I met some Christ followers in college. And he said, what's different about you people? And they said, Jesus Christ. He said, oh, I've tried the church. She said to him, I didn't say the church. I said Jesus. People need to feel that hope. There needs to be a distinctive about real Christ followers in our day. A feeling it, like coming up to a fire in the cool and the coldness of the night, and you come and you feel that warmth. There's a hope that comes from this. That's exactly what it says here at the end. Let me conclude this with this last question. It's the most important of all the morning. Does God's plan include me? That's the question we've been looking at. We've been wanting to ask for the whole time. Does his plan include me? Well, back in verse 11, look what it says here. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. You know, one of the favorite things I have in life is when my name comes up with the word inheritance. I just love that. I love when my name comes up in a will with inheritance. And I love this one because God is the richest person in the universe. And the Bible says that his plan includes every Christ follower. There is an inheritance. You are adopted into the family, the sentence says. And because you're adopted, it's not material possessions. I'm not a TV preacher. I'm not here to tell you give a dollar and you'll get ten dollars back. No, no, no. I've got something better than that. The Bible promises every follower of Jesus Christ, you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. I can't even really tell you all that that means, but it's incredible. It's incredible that he obtained this inheritance. And here's how it ends, right there in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Do you have hope today? If you're convinced that everything is an accident, that we got here by chance, at the end of your life, who knows? Who knows? But there's hope. You know, my father grew up as a nominal Methodist. In Pennsylvania and he goes to Vietnam and I recently found out he told my, my mother he said he said you just didn't have any hope you'd get back over here it was just a hopeless situation in Vietnam wander around I remember him telling me wander around in the poncho in that rain for years and you know what it did to that he just had a really thin veneer it wasn't, it wasn't a faith it was just a thin veneer of something he became an agnostic. He was an atheist. He raised me as an atheist agnostic. But when I was 18, he embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. You get a hope and you move through the difficult life when you feel the warmth of Christ and a future for you. It's up to you. What will you choose? Is your switch on or is your switch off? If your switch is on, how intense is it today? Are you at that 70, 80, 90%? Or have I caught you on a bad day like 5, 6, 7%?
Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.